Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. He is risen. All right, we did this in every service. All over the world, on Easter Sunday morning, the pastor gets up and says, he is risen, and the congregation responds by saying, he is risen indeed. And we do this three times. Are you ready? Let's try that again. Are you ready? He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen and amen. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, this morning culminates a 40-day journey that we have been on. It's called the Lenten season. And it's where we begin these 40 days by observing Jesus and remembering again all that he went through for us. Now, what's fascinating about that Lenten season is it culminates in what's called Holy Week. It's also known as the Passion of Christ. And when you process through the 40 days of Lent, you end up on the last week, and that last week, Holy Week, or the Passion of the Christ, begins with Palm Sunday. That was last Sunday. But it really culminates into three days. Three days where Jesus suffered. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we focus on those three days. And what we discover is Jesus suffered in two ways. The first one is he suffered in his soul, in his soul. And what we read about in scripture and what we process through, and on Good Friday, we had this sanctuary transformed into the 10 stations of the cross. And many people came and just went to each station and remembered again all that Jesus went through. But he suffered in soul. What do we mean by that? We mean that for three days we focus on the stuff of Jesus' suffering that wasn't physical. We get there, but we begin there. We discover about Jesus that one of his friends betrayed him for money, sold him for 30 coins. Other friends of his that when he needed them the most, they fell asleep. They didn't stick with him. We discovered that his closest friends at the end of his natural life, they got to the point where they no longer stuck with him and Jesus found himself utterly alone. Utterly alone. You see, Jesus suffered in soul. People misunderstood him, they betrayed him, they denied that they ever knew him. But then there's also the physical suffering. Yes, we focus on that as well. And the physical suffering of Jesus sort of begins with the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem being coronated as the king of Israel and people are cheering for him. He goes then to the Last Supper with his disciples and it's there where Jesus discovers that his disciples might not back him all the way. And then we find Jesus physically is now he is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. One of his own disciples betrays him with a kiss, and he is manhandled and taken from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's put into a prison cell. 
I've been in that cell in Jerusalem where they believed that he was held. Not only that, then he begins to receive physical abuse. And the scriptures outline that for us. The scriptures detail that for us. And I don't want to go into all of that in depth, but the text tells us that Jesus was stripped, he was beaten, and then he was mockingly redressed as a king. A crown of thorns was forced upon his head. A scepter was put in his hand as though he was a king, and then they took the scepter and they hit him over the head with it. Then they stripped him again, and they flogged him and beat him. And then they forced him to carry his own crossbar, the cross beam to his own cross. He faced the humiliation of being naked and carrying that crossbar throughout the streets of Jerusalem to Golgotha's hill. And then he was nailed to a cross. He was crucified. Crucifixion. Crucifixion was so painful and so humiliating and so brutal that there was a new word that was coined into the human language to describe the unique pain. It's the word in English that's called excruciating. Ex means out of. Cruciate is a reference to the cross. Out of the cross, it was so painful of soul and of body that it was coined this new phrase, excruciating. No one wanted to be excruciated. And yet here Jesus is. He's nailed to the cross and the final physical act that was done to him is a spear was thrust up under his ribcage into his heart to make sure that he was dead and that he had not survived. Now listen, as followers of Jesus, we don't focus on those two things, the pain of soul and the pain of body because we're morbid. We don't do that because of that. The first reason why we focus on that is to remind ourselves again of what Jesus has done for us out of love and selflessness and his commitment to us. That's why we focus on that. But the other reason why we do that and we focus on the pain of soul and the pain of body is because we know that through suffering and feeling rejection and humiliation and pain and all the stuff of life that we try to avoid, that when we get there and we find ourselves there, that Jesus knows. That when we feel abandonment and misunderstanding and our souls struggle, we believe that Jesus, because of what he went through, now knows where I'm at. And in that moment, when I turn to him, he knows and he meets me there. So we consider the last three days of Jesus' life and the torment of soul and the torment of body for those reasons. It shows his love and his commitment to us. It shows that he was human, fully human, and fully God at the same time. And when I find myself there, he knows and he meets me. You know, every year, I look forward to those three days. Now here's my full confession. In springtime, when nature around us goes from death to life, 
I also look forward to three other days. The three other days I look forward to are the N, is the NCAA National Wrestling Tournament. It's my confession. I serve as the ad hoc chaplain for the UVA wrestling team. And for years now, minus last year because the tournament was canceled, I will travel with the team and I'll go to the NCAA tournament which covers three days. And by the way, it's awesome. Now, full confession, some of my family has come to a UVA wrestling match, and when they saw it up close and personal, they never returned again. <laughs> Dad, that's good for you. I'm not doing that ever again. But I love it. I used to wrestle, and I have a passion for wrestling, and so I go for those three days. But here's what's fascinating about this year. We went to the Enterprise Arena in St. Louis, Missouri. It seats nine, over 19,000 people. Well, there's 333 wrestlers that go for 10 weight classes. In other words, there's 33 wrestlers for each of 10 weight classes, and all of them got four tickets this year. So the arena that seats over 19,000 had 1,300 fans, and we were dispersed all over the arena. And my ticket was literally in the nosebleed. I was the last row of the last section up against the block wall on the back row. But man, I still loved it. You know what I noticed? No fans ever got momentum. It's pretty hard to cheer when you're separated and there's less than 20% of the people filling the arena. It was a very odd feeling. It was very strange. As a matter of fact, it was barely over 10% of the arena was filled. It was a weird feeling. But here's something you need to know about the National Wrestling Tournament, and I know you're on the edge of your seat and you can't wait to hear what I'm gonna tell you next. Thank you. So here's what we know is that for wrestlers, you have a goal, and your goal is to be All-American. There's eight of those in every weight class. So 80 wrestlers out of all of the hundreds of thousands of young men that wrestle, there's only eight every year, eight for each weight class. There's 80 every year that become All-American. And how you become an All-American, it's called the blood round. Now it sounds gruesome, but it's not as gross as it sounds, although the ladies in my family would completely disagree with me on this. But the blood round is this. It's where if you win in that round, you become All-American. It's the blood round. It's where you lay everything out, you do everything you can to win in that round, and if you do, you are one of, all, one of the eight All-Americans. If you don't, you leave and you go home with nothing, zero. It's like you were never there. And what I do is I observe the blood round. Now listen, this year, Louis Hayes, who wrestles for the University of Virginia at 133 pounds, he pinned his guy in two minutes and 10 seconds in the blood round. Okay, I was assuming you'd be cheering rhapsodically for Louis Hayes. My heart was coming out of my chest. I was screaming for Louis from the, the nosebleed seat, just screaming, and he pinned his kid, and there were about 12 UVA fans just dancing and cheering. And 
But you know what I normally watch in the blood round is the wrestlers that lose. Here's why I'm a parent and a pastor. And what I observe isn't so much the winner. I watch the loser. The loser's predictable. They'll run, jump into the arms of their coach, scream and yell. But most of the losers, who are some of the finest, most fit uh, D1 athletes in the country, they will end up in a puddle on the mat sobbing. It's stunning to me. Because many of them have wrestled since they were 10 years old. This was everything they sacrificed for and focused on. It's everything that many of them have been living for, for years and years and years. And to get into the blood round and lose is something they never even thought about. And so they puddle on the mat, they begin to sob and cry, and then almost all of them avoid their coaches, they avoid the fans, and they sprint towards one of those tunnels that exits the floor and they curl up along the wall all alone, and they cry. And I've watched that happen over and over and over again. You see, the idea here is, is what was believed in, and what was sacrificed for, and what was pointed towards didn't happen. It didn't reach its fulfillment. And my heart goes out to those men. Now, as we think about that, I want us to think about Jesus. I want us to think a little bit about how Jesus in the Gospels, specifically the Gospel of John, is moving towards the cross. What's fascinating in the Gospel of John is four times Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go to the cross, I will be tortured. I'm going to die, and oh, by the way, disciples, you're going to leave me. And the apostle Peter chimes in and says, I will never leave you. And Jesus says to him, guess what, Peter? Not only will you deny me, but you'll do it publicly three times, and then the rooster will crow. But what fascinates me even more than Jesus predicting what was going to happen to him is that the first time in the Gospel of John, how he predicts it, it fascinates me. Because in John chapter 12, verses 23 through 29, Jesus predicts his death. Here's what he says in the gospel. He replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's so strange to me. He looks at the coming things he will go, go through, and he says, that will glorify me. Reading on, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. Then Jesus proclaims, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I will glorify it and will glorify it again. Biblically, the word glorify, the Greek word, is the Greek word doxazo. It comes from the root word doxa, which means glory, which is where we get the word doxology from. But in Hebrew, the word glory is kabod. It means heaviness or weightiness. The glory of God is weighty and it's heavy. But ultimately, to glorify means this, to, to declare and reveal God's glory, strength, and power. 
So here Jesus is in his first prediction of his death. He says to his disciples, hey, guess what? I'm going to go through this and I will be glorified and God the Father will be glorified too. What a strange perspective. He's talking about glorify and glorifying God. And I look at that and I go, I would have never thought to perceive it that way. And yet one of my favorite biblical theologians, Richard Bauckham, who teaches at Cambridge University in England, says this. At Jesus' hour, his doxa, his glory, is manifested to the full in an act of power of a very particular and paradoxical kind. That of being lifted up in torture and pain so that the godness of God, so often revealed in the scripture in acts of more conventional power, is also seen in the power of arms opened wide on the cross in atoning love, in the gift of eternal life to all believers. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus' suffering of soul and suffering of body glorifies him. It brings glory to who he is. And then notice how Jesus explains his death and resurrection. He says it's like a seed that is planted into the ground. And when it grows back, it'll bring more life than what was contained when it was alive and by itself. Well, what we're going to do this morning is very briefly, we're going to read one of the resurrection stories. But in order to understand it, we need to understand the three actors in this resurrection story. First of all, there's Mary Magdalene. Then there's the apostle Peter. And by the way, Peter is the second best name in all of scripture, and Jesus would agree. Not only is there Peter, but there's John, who's the writer of the gospel we will be reading from. So the question has to be, who in the world is Mary Magdalene? Who is she? Because suddenly in the gospel of John chapter 20, we discover that she's one of the three people that are at the tomb and experience the resurrection. Who is Mary Magdalene? Well, I'll tell you the outside. All biblical scholars believe she was from the city of Migdal. It was a little seaside city on the shores of the Galilee. And during Jesus' time, if you had a common first name, you didn't have a last name, so they would tell where you were from. In other words, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, Mary of Migdal. And she became Mary Magdalene. And so Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, gives us the backstory on Mary Magdalene. Here's what Luke tells us about her. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Harold's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So who is Mary Magdalene? She's from a seaside village. 
And the scripture says that she lived a spiritually tormented life. And then she meets Jesus, and Jesus sets her free. And after Jesus sets her free, she becomes his disciple. Jesus just didn't have men disciples. He had women. The text just tells us there were women that traveled with Jesus, and he discipled them, and she was one of them. In the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene appears out of nowhere at the cross. It's the first time we meet her. But in the other Gospels, here's what we discover, is that Mary Magdalene is a woman who is very devoted to Jesus. He has set her free. And so what we discover is, is that when Jesus is being crucified, when all the male disciples leave, she stays, and she observes his death. The gospel also tells us when Joseph of Arimathea comes to remove Jesus' body off the cross, that Mary Magdalene follows Jesus' body. She sits on a bench across from Joseph of Arimathea's tomb and watched Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wrap Jesus' body and then hurriedly put him in the tomb because the sun is setting and he must be buried before nightfall. And she assesses that they have not done it properly. So the Gospels tell us she goes out and buys spices and she waits another day and a half till after the Sabbath to where she's going to come back to the tomb and she's lovingly going to prepare Jesus' body because it was done so inaccurately by the men. Ladies, how many of you know that when men do this kind of thing, they don't, if ever, get it right? So she's returning on resurrection morning. She's returning to grieve Jesus' death. She's returning to lovingly prepare him for the tomb. And so, we pick up our reading. We pick up our reading in John chapter 20. And how I would like to read this together, because it's a little bit lengthy, is men, I want you to read with me out loud for the first half. Men, are you ready? Wives, turn to your husband if you're here with him and say you're going to do this. Men, let's read out loud together, John 20, verses 1 and following. Out loud. Ready, men? Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now women, I'm going to get you to read Mary Magdalene's part with me. Are you ready, ladies? All right, let's read out loud. 
Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in their merit, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I want you to think about the resurrection. I have suggestions for God. I often do when I read the Gospels. And here's one of them. I am no marketing expert, but I would think you would want more than three people at the resurrection. I know what it's like to sit in an arena that seats 19,000 people and there's only 1,300 of us and how flat it feels. But why, God, would you only have three people at the resurrection of your son? Why? I would recommend to God that he would flop Jesus' birth for the resurrection. Have the angelic choir at the resurrection. Go gather people for the resurrection. That would be my recommendation because the resurrection is the point. But God doesn't. John's gospel has three people at the grave and not a single person expected Jesus to be raised from death to life. So how is it when we think about Easter, do we put feet to your faith? First of all, I want you to notice something about Peter and John. They are anxious, troubled, running, and busy. And I think all of us noticed, men, as we read the part about Peter and John, that they were competitive with each other. Did you notice that John, the gospel writer, uh, told you twice that he outran Peter to the tomb. Did you notice that? Did you also notice that Peter went straight into the tomb, but John got there first? It means Peter body blocked John out of the way and went into the tomb, and then John picked himself up off the ground, and when Peter left the tomb, John went inside. That's what the scripture tells you with my Hollywood license to explain it. But please notice that every time we read about these men, they're anxious, they're running, they're busy, and they go home quickly. But notice about Mary. It says Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She stood there. Peter and John are gone, and she's totally, totally alone. And what she does 
is she faces her grief and her loss. What she had sacrificed for, what she had longed for, what she believed for, what she was looking forward to is gone. She has lost the blood round. Jesus is dead, and the amazing thing is, is his body's not even there to add insult to injury. She came to lovingly prepare him, and she won't even get to do that. Here's what I know. Almost all of us spend our entire lives trying to avoid being where she is. We avoid being alone. We avoid facing the struggles of our life. We do whatever it takes to avoid this moment. Because here she finally admits that she's lost and she's broken and she's alone and she stands there and weeps. Men, even we can do this. But again, we do everything that we can. We spend all of our money and we strategize as best as we can that we will never end up here. But what I believe is that when we stop running, stand still and own up to how we are really doing and how life is going, that in Jesus, good stuff can happen. Look, I know because I've done it myself. I don't wanna be where Mary is. But when I finally went there, I met Jesus. I met the resurrected Christ. I believe that if you will get alone and be truly honest with yourself and refuse to stuff down the emotions and acknowledge that and finally be a whole person, physical and soul, if you will finally do that and then look for Jesus, you find him. Better yet, he finds you. Notice that she doesn't recognize him and a reason why she doesn't, she didn't believe he would rise again. She believed that death had won. But when he says to her, when Jesus said to her, Mary, she recognized him and it changes everything. Would you stand with me? As we stand together, I'm gonna ask that every woman and every man would take just a moment and let's close our eyes. The resurrection of Jesus and his death and suffering are glorious. They're glorious because that suffering reveals something about Jesus to us. And we in this moment in his presence, if we would stand and face all the stuff that we're trying to avoid, like Mary did, if in this moment we will stand in front of the tomb and we will face ourselves, I know 
that if you will turn by faith to Jesus, he'll find you.